the evidence of the eyewitness testimony within the Gospels is overwhelming. There is no doubt that the modern church in America has failed its people by not teaching them the earliest stages of church history. Apostolic succession paved the way to preserve the New Testament text. Welcome to another episode of Facts. I'm your host, Stephen Boyce, and we are continuing through the series on the 12 Apostles. And today we're going to do a big one, one that I've put off for a while because I've been trying to collect as many thoughts as possible uh, in quite a controversial character of the 12 Apostles being Simon Peter. And the reason for that is there's a great feud uh, between Protestant denominations and Roman Catholics and Orthodox. And there's so much that people disagree on, but really it's not a lot uh, as it relates to the person of Peter. It's little things here and there that make a big deal and make a different application to the man himself. And so there's a lot of landmines that I've been trying to avoid stepping on when covering the subject of Peter. Because honestly, we miss the beauty of redemption, uh, the call, uh, the magnificent work that Peter was able to accomplish in his life when we bicker and fight over what he became in this essence or in that essence. And I, I want to avoid extremes because there are a lot of extremes, I think, on both ends of the spectrum. Uh, and they can be avoided, and we still have a clear picture of who Peter was and what he was able to accomplish. When we look at Simon Peter, much of the gospel narratives are based off of his eyewitness testimony. He was obviously one of the essential uh, witnesses that was desired by audiences to hear from. And that is why we have the Gospel of Mark, and those that have missed uh, earlier episodes on the creation of the Gospels that I did— I do believe that Mark is a pinned testimony of the oral teaching and tradition of the Apostle Peter when he was preaching in Rome, and we'll get to him being there just in a minute. And in this, the people desired Peter's story, uh, Peter's knowledge, Peter's experience, Peter's eyesight, Peter's ears, what he heard, what he seen, where he was, what he did, what he what he did as a, a bad example and what he did as a good example. And we see all of that encompassed in the gospel of Mark. And then the essential necessity of that testimony, Matthew corroborating his gospel with the eyewitness testimony of Mark. And then Luke also doing that. And then and then Luke utilizing even Peter in the early church setting, creating his earliest content in his tr second treatise to Theophilus in the book of Acts, uses Peter as the primary source witness in his travels with Paul when he met Peter. And again, if you missed that on Acts, I also did that on covered on Acts. He used Peter, not John. Though he mentions them together in the earliest stages, it is Peter with the oral speaking parts. It is Peter who he ran into on a couple of occasions while traveling with Paul and would have received the information that he did. Peter is an essential 
witness that was recognized by the other disciples as well as later followers of Jesus, like Luke, like Mark, and others. So Peter is essential. He's instrumental in understanding what's going on in the life of Jesus and what went on in the earliest stages of the church. Even the gospel writers and the historians saw his testimony as primary and essential to telling the full story. Uh, there's no doubt that he rose up as a leader amongst the other leaders, even in Acts chapter 1. Uh, it is Peter that got up and spoke to the other disciples. It is Peter who got up on the day of Pentecost and proclaimed Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead and that the people needed to repent for the killing of the prince of life. And it was Peter that established in that sermon the beginning of the church. And so therefore, that is where even the earliest biblical writers utilized and highlighted Peter's involvement with Jesus and his church. And so we, we look at the life of Peter and we see he's one of the inner three, which has created this. And then we look into the life of Peter as Jesus saw him. Now, Peter was a clear example of the foot in the mouth disease. Um, he was so anxious and zealous to defend Jesus, to be with Jesus, uh, to love Jesus, that in doing so, he tripped over himself a lot. Uh, he made rash decisions. He made quick assessments. And in doing so, sometimes it led to the most beautiful thing and then also the most tragic thing at the same time. We look down at Peter because he said to Jesus, I will die for you. And then he went off and betrayed him by denial. Not betrayal to the extent of Judas Iscariot, but he did deny any involvement in association with him. But think about this for a minute. His proclamation to Jesus was half true. It wasn't fully false. Later in the Gospel of John, we see that he would die for Jesus. And in history, we'll see in a minute, he did die for Jesus. And so in relation, his statement to Jesus wasn't fully false. He just wasn't ready to die for him at that time. And so when we look at Simon Peter, he did quick to react, make statements. He even grabbed a sword uh, in the garden and in quick defense of Jesus, cut off the ear of Malchus. Jesus heals the ear of Malchus. We don't know it's Peter until we get to the Gospel of John. None of the other synoptics mention it was Peter. And if you want more reasons for that, you can go back to John's Gospel and the making of John's Gospel. And I explain in those episodes on the Gospels as to why Peter's name was hidden. But it was Peter who was quick to defend Jesus even in the garden. But it was also Peter when Jesus said, Who do men say that I am? In Matthew 16. And all the theories came out, you know, you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah, you're Jeremiah, you're one of the prophets. And Jesus then says, well, who do you say that I am? And quickly, it was Peter who said, you are Christ, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You are the one that everyone had been waiting for. He recognized him as the Messiah. And the son 
of the living God. And then that is when Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You, you, didn't, you didn't get this revelation from humans. But the Father had given Peter understanding of who Jesus actually was. And I want to highlight that this becomes an essential attack on Peter's eyewitness testimony and status in the church. Because in the second century, we have a gospel known as the Gospel of Thomas. And I did a whole episode on the Gospel of Thomas. In that episode and in that discussion, we talk about the essential dynamic of that same question being posed in that narrative or sayings gospel, really. And in the gospel of Thomas, we have these words where, where people start responding and Matthew and Peter speak up and they're wrong. But th th you're a great philosopher. They start misapplying who Jesus was. And it was Matthew and Peter who got it wrong. Ironically, that's the two essential gospels of apostles who had put out proclamations and, and, and teachings and sayings of Jesus. But it was Thomas who said, I, I, I know the answer. And Thomas was given secret sayings of Jesus. It was Thomas who is the hero of that story which is a quick attack on Peter's proclamation, in my opinion, an attack on the authenticity of Mark, and Matthew, who also answered incorrectly. And in doing that, I think it was an attack on his gospel account. So when we look at that scene, even heretical gospels recognize the importance of the moment and who answered that question correctly. So much so that the gospel of Thomas reconstructs the narrative, reconstructs the discussion and changes the hero of the story by criticizing two others who report it was Peter, Matthew 16, because the greatest proclamation is not in Mark's. Although Mark represents the essence of that, it is Matthew who goes on to say, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It is Matthew who proclaims that. So naturally, the Gospel of Thomas was going to bash the two essential proponents, Peter, Gospel of Mark, and Matthew's declaration of Jesus to Peter in the Gospel of Matthew by discouraging their answers by uplifting Thomas's. It's not a coincidence in my opinion. So when we get into the life of Peter, we see essential moments where he was one of the great proclamations that was used by God at Pentecost, at procl uh, proclaiming who Jesus actually was. But also we see a little bit of the foot in the mouth problem. But God was working on Peter. He was getting him ready for a bigger work. Now, as it relates to the life of Peter in the Gospels, we see that he's the inner three. He, he's a leader of the group. He is a vocal person and a desired eyewitness as a result by not just the other Gospel writers, but even early patristics as well. Now, we, we see him kind of fall off the face of the earth in Antioch uh, and his, his contact with Cornelius, uh, the Roman centurion. He was a leader. 
And looking at the life of Peter, we see it fall off an axe and move over to Paul, which makes sense with the eyewitness testimony there of Luke, watching the life and ministry of Paul. So we don't have much after his encounters in places like Caesarea or maybe Antioch or Jerusalem. And this is where the controversy begins. Because we have reason to believe that Peter was a founder of the church at Antioch, but also a founder of the church, one of the founders, if not a co-founder with Paul, of the church of Rome. And we have multiple reasons to believe this. And again, I did a whole episode on this, and I think that we have, and, and it was called Sola Scriptura is dead. And that is because Protestants have overreacted to the sea of churches that were started by Peter at Rome because Roman Catholicism states that he was the first pope. Now, without getting into all the negative controversy or even the positive side of the controversy, I don't want us to spend our entire time in this short episode fighting that out. But I will say this, and I said it in a post on social media and got almost crucified the same way Peter did in, in, in saying so. You don't have to hold to Roman Catholicism's view of the papacy to believe that Peter was the essential founder of the Church of Rome. You don't have to be a Roman Catholic to believe that Peter started the succession of bishops with Linus and Clement and others in order to believe that Peter went to Rome and did those things. And then by the design, you have to be Roman Catholic. You don't. That is a Protestant myth that has been pushed far too long and far too wide in its distribution. Because there are many a denominational pools, including apostolic churches, who are not started by Peter, who still recognize the essential foundings of the church from Peter. Here's an Eastern father for you. Irenaeus of Lyon, who was in the succession line of John, not Peter, said in the second century, he's writing, he said that Peter and Paul had been founders of the Church of Rome. And then he later on gives some succession and mentions Linus as one of the succeeding bishops. Now, he doesn't exclude Paul, and I think that's important. He even says that the Gospel of Matthew was written while Peter and Paul were starting churches in Rome. Now, the time that they were there together would have been in the 60s. Uh, Paul did not make it to Rome before he wrote the letter. Uh, writing the letter to the Romans at the end of the 50s, he was trying to get to Rome, and eventually he did. But, it's, but, but we have to ask ourselves this question. How did the Church of Rome already have a people and a congregation to write to in the book of Romans if Paul had not yet been there? Well, to me, the answer is pretty simple. Had Peter had already been there. Now, one of the great fightbacks here is that Paul doesn't mention Peter 
in the long list of names of relatives and and uh, connections and people that he had been ministering to or had known from that area at the end of the book of Romans. And I think it's a legitimate concern. I think it's a legitimate argument. But was that really what Paul was writing on behalf of Peter? Because that doesn't seem to be necessary. Uh, we demonstrated that the usage of Second Peter in the in chapter number three, when he references the writings of Paul in all of his epistles, but preceding that, he said he wrote to them things that were hard to understand. And in those writings, they were hard to understand and people were corrupt in those writings. But when you look at the documentation of Peter in that preceding statement, he was clearly using Roman theology that Paul had written to the Romans to precede his statements about Paul's letters. And he said that Paul had written to them things that were hard. Well, who is them? There are many indicators in, in, in my uh, friend Samuel Neeson from Explain International, who uh, we co-operate with quite a bit with Explore and Explain, uh, demonstrated to me multiple times the usages of Romans in the indicators that Second Peter was written to the same church that Paul wrote to in the book of Romans. And I think he is exactly right. And he clearly has this connectivity going along with it. Even the first century writer, Ignatius of Antioch, which, again, Peter being not much dispute there that he was the founder of the Church of Antioch, uh, not, not really much a dispute there. He was also in the succession line. Uh, he followed uh, in succession to Peter third, not, not, not immediately, but third, but he followed Evodius. So is Peter, Evodius, and then Ignatius. But note what Ignatius does in referring in his own letter to the Romans. He states that Peter and Paul gave authoritative admonitions to them that he himself didn't have authority. I'm talking about the apostolic authority itself. So that could indicate one of two things. Either A, Peter was in Rome, just like Paul was. Or B, Peter wrote to Rome just like Paul had, which again, <laughs> I think is true. I think that uh, First and Second Peter are completely connected to Rome. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. For, from First Peter's standpoint, from Second Peter's standpoint, I certainly believe that he was potentially writing to the church at Rome. But even Ignatius, again, a non-succession of Rome, yes, of Peter in Antioch, gives credence and authority beyond his own to Peter in Rome. Which, by the way, I want to mention that that <laughs> right there should indicate us that uh, the authority of Peter and his bishops were not equal in status. This is why I reject Roman papacy to the extent that these uh, popes are infallible. Uh, these popes are somehow equal in authority to apostolic authority. Uh, I do think they are authorities. I think bishops are uh, connected to apostolic succession, but I do not believe that automatically makes their authority equal to the apostles, nor does that mean that their ha the hand on head succession means that they are uh, pure to the apostolic teachings. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about the Anglican church is the emphasis on apostolic succession in both hands on heads 
and rightness of heart. Meaning the it's not just succession by hands on head, but also doctrine is pure in the heart of that bishop as well. And so I think both are essential for apostolic succession, not either or. I think they are necessitated by both. But when it comes to Antioch, even their third leader, second after Peter, mentions the authority of Peter in the Church of Rome. Then we come to Clement of Alexandria. So we look at another succession line through somewhat of Peter. Uh, going down to Alexandria was Peter ordaining Mark. Mark went down there and ended up doing this as well. And he states that Peter had preached the word publicly in Rome. Now, this is in the second century. Clement is writing this. Clement of Alexandria clearly recognized the public teaching ministry of Peter in Rome. And again, all of these fathers had related the idea that Peter had a gospel written for him while he was in Rome, and John Mark trans transmitted that from an oral tradition to a written tradition. So we shouldn't be surprised, is the point. Origin also, uh, a little bit after Clement, as reported by Eusebius states, Peter Having first founded the church of Antioch, went away to Rome, preached the gospel. He also presided over the church of Antioch, presided over the church of Rome until his death. Well, that's interesting. We now have multiple attestation from individuals who are connected to Peter, but not in Rome. In Alexandria, Eastern churches like Irenaeus, Clement, Eusebius is going with this and in agreement. Even going so far as to say with Origen, after presiding over the church of Antioch, Peter was succeeded by Evodius, and then again Ignatius after that, and thereafter by Ignatius, who was a disciple of John the Apostle. Again, the connection line is not favoritism to Peter. Ignatius was connected to John even though he was in succession line to Peter. Tertullian, in North Africa, though he came from Rome, established himself in the North African churches, stated also, also the church of Rome, which made Clement to have been ordained in the like manner by Peter. Now, this is the Clement of Rome, not Clement of Alexandria. This is Clement who wrote the epistle of 1 Clement, and that Peter ordained him to be a successor in Rome. Lactantius, in his book called Of the Manner in Which the Persecutors Died, which is about 4th century, early 4th century, said, while Nero reigned, the apostle Peter came to Rome, and through the power of God committed unto him, did miracles, and turning many to the true religion of faith, and built up a faithful and steadfast temple unto the Lord. So we have more indicators. Eusebius, not only relating origin, but giving his own opinion, states that Peter went to Rome to confront Simon Magus, who's mentioned in Acts chapter number 8. And that Magus flees to Rome, where Romans began to regard him as a deity. And it was according to Eusebius 
that God sent Peter to Rome and that Simon Peter met up with Simon Magus and put an end to the nonsense of Simon Magus. Jerome, one of the leaders, major scribes to the Roman church in the 4th and 5th century states, Peter was to Rome in the second year of Claudius to overthrow Simon Magus, agreeing with what Eusebius said. And he held the sacerdotal chair there for 25 years until the last, that is the 14th year of Nero. So he even gives not just an indicator, but a timeline of when Peter was there, how long he was there for, and when the year of Nero, the 14th year of Nero, he was killed. Now, this is Jerome. He has the archives of the Church of Rome, in addition to all of these others. So it's not just like Roman bias. We have other succession lines connected to Peter or not at all from Peter saying the same thing. There's an apocryphal work. It's the 7th century. And it's, it's a Latin text preserved in a manuscript copy. And it also echoes that Peter confronted Simon Magus in Rome. We have an abundance of corroborated testimonies from essential and non-essential figures in agreement of Peter's existence in Rome. To fight this is ridiculous, in my opinion. We don't have to be, we don't have to be Roman Catholic to say, hey, you know what? These essential figures of the church who had records to archives, who are connected to apostolic lines, who are connected to Peter himself, made all this up. There was no Roman Catholic controversy. Why would they make this up? There wasn't Protestant against Catholic, Orthodox against Catholic, Anglican, whatever. It, it didn't exist when these writers and historians are publishing this work. Why would they make this up to create some conspiracy that we are fighting today? It, it, it doesn't work. We also have an additional testimony that Peter died there. As I stated from Jerome, he was killed in the 14th year of Nero. In 1 Clement, again, a succession line leader of Peter and Paul, who wrote at the end of the first century, speaks about the martyrdom of Peter and Paul. He's the earliest who does so. I did a whole episode on him as well, by the way. He said, let us take the noble examples of our own generation. So he's clearly connected to the timeline and lifetime of these apostles. He says, through jealousy and envy, the greatest and most just pillars of the church were persecuted and came even unto the death. Peter, through unjust envy, endured not one or two, but many labors, and at last, having delivered his testimony, departed in the place of glory due to him. Now, the writer here is assuming that his audience writing to the Corinthians, he being in Rome himself, is assuming that they know what happened exactly to Peter and Paul. Now, there's controversy here, and I've been pushed back on this, and that's fine, uh, that there is no explicit statement of Nero uh, hanging him upside down by crucifixion, which we'll get to, or Paul being beheaded or anything of the sort. It almost seems like his own people, envy and jealousy, 
um, is what created the martyrdoms of both. Now, I don't necessarily disagree that the explicit statements of their death are not here. I think either or is reading into the scenario. I think either or is reading into the scenario. I really do. Um, no, it doesn't say um, Nero killed them. Uh, no, it doesn't say at the same time that the church or their own people killed them. We don't know exactly the explicit statements because it's in this text, Clement assumes the audience knows how he dies. So for us to bring any other assumptions into the occasion to use is, is irrelevant uh, because it's nothing more but an assumption, both on my perspective of how he died there or anybody else's. But what we do recognize here is that Peter was killed. Uh, Peter was put to death, and it was very clear that these examples were connecting Peter to Rome itself. Now, we're not left alone as to Peter's martyrdom. Again, John's gospel indicators indicates to us, and they give us indicators of how he would die, that he would die for Jesus, and that he would be killed against his will, uh, and that he would be stretched out almost in, in a, a sense. So even John's gospel seems to indicate to us a martyrdom death for Peter. No, it doesn't mention in Rome, but that he would be martyred. Now, the apocryphal Acts of Peter, which is second century, states that he was crucified, heels down, after returning to the city because he left fearing his death, but that he actually encountered the resurrected Jesus who told him that he was going to go back to Rome and be crucified a second time, indicating, Peter, you need to die for me. And Peter went back, and there he met his fate by crucifixion. Now, that's not just some apocryphal work that is the only indicator of his crucifixion in Rome. We have others. Tertullian, for example, it, on two occasions, mentions the death of Peter. Um, he, in his prescription against heretics, notes that Peter endured a passion just like the Lord's, which really connects itself to the apocryphal acts of Peter. And he says, how happy is the church where Peter endured a passion like the Lord, where Peter, where Paul was crowned in death like John's, which is a whole nother discussion. And in another writing, he speaks of Peter's crucifixion as well. He says, the budding faith Nero first made bloody in Rome. There Peter was girded by another since he was bound to the cross. So he does associate. Now remember, Tertullian is a lawyer. He had been in Rome and he brought records to the churches of North Africa. So he is bringing, and Tertullian was huge on the archives and also the succession lines that had to be connected to apostolic authority and authenticity. And so Tertullian is not just dreaming these things up. He was in Rome looking at the archives and writes his treaties from a legal perspective as a lawyer that he was. So again, I take Tertullian quite serious on the records because he reports them exactly how a legal defense would do so. But again, he's not alone. Origin of Alexandria and his commentary in the book of Genesis, which we have preserved for us in quotation by Eusebius in book three. Uh, he states, Peter was crucified at Rome with his head downward as he himself had desired to suffer. So again, 
died in Rome. He was in Rome, crucified, upside down. And it was his desire to be in that position. In the fourth century, Peter, not of the apostles, but of Alexandria, uh, one of the bishop succession lines in Alexandria, uh, he wrote a an, uh, he wrote an epistle on penance in which we have uh, some fragmented statements, including Peter's death. He says, Peter, the first of the apostles, have been often apprehended and thrown into prison, treated wrongly, was at last crucified in the city of Rome. Jerome also continues, which we've already mentioned him. He states elsewhere. He wrote that at Nero's hand, Peter has received the crown of martyrdom being nailed to the cross with his head toward the ground, his feast, his feet were raised on high, asserting he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner of his Lord. And later on in Illustrious Men, he wrote, Peter was buried at Rome in the Vatican near the triumphal way where he was venerated by the whole world. So not only did Jerome know of his death and his martyrdom, but his location of burial. And so when we look into these assertions, we have archive records being pulled by the churches and their leaders who are representing accuracy and consistency of the martyrdom of Peter. We could put this off if we want, but these are archived church records and church historians who are looking at what was traditionally kept by the churches about their own leaders. And we cannot dismiss that as legend and myth because there is succession lines not only by leader, but by record of those leaders. And they are continuing to show consistency across the world that their story about their leader at the Church of Rome, Peter, was martyred. And to eliminate that he was even there, to me, is a bad move historically. Because if that is historically inaccurate, all of these things, from Jerome to Peter of Alexandria, uh, to Origen, to Tertullian, to Ignatius, to Lactontius, to Clement of Al to Irenaeus, Eusebius, Evodius, Ignatius. All of these guys are wrong. If they are wrong, what else are they wrong about? Because we lose all authenticity to church tradition. All succession lines, all teaching, what else got corrupted? What other forgeries were passed through? What other indicators do we have that demonstrate that what we believe is not some co-conspiracy that happened at a council or a group of people? This is a domino effect. When we start dismissing the essentials that are plain and clear and corroborated without dispute about P Peter's existence in Rome, what else falls down the domino line when we dismiss this? I say again, you don't have to be Roman Catholic to believe Peter went to Rome. Definitely not that he was killed at Rome. Now, I realize that the Roman Catholic Church believes they have the relics of Peter, and they probably do. Uh, much research has gone into it. I don't think it can be definitive. But they have a tomb. I mean, you look at pictures of it online where the relics of Peter and, and the reasoning for where they were is quite accurate. There is a way to connect where his bones were transported and preserved, taken care of, etc., passed on. 
Um, whether the exact bones they found and did investigative work on, first century bones from a male about the same time Peter would have been, uh, perhaps they are. Um, I would lean with the idea that his relics are in Rome, that the tomb dedicated to him probably contained pieces of his body. I'm fine with that. Uh, am I certain or completely confident in that? Nah, really? Um, I think it's, I think it's probable. I think it's likely. I don't think it's a definitive thing we can make. I think there's good reason to believe it is, but I don't think we can definitively say so. <clears throat> I certainly don't believe there's any special power in relics. Um, but nonetheless, I do think that his body is probably buried there as Jerome stated. He knew of its existence at that point. So then that brings us into his life and his death and his burial. Um, this is Peter. This is what we have of him. We don't have to roll out the sola scriptura nonsense in order to accept the historical statements, because there's no doubt that in my mind, even the biblical narratives indicate he went there himself, even God preparing him with Cornelius, a Roman, and showing him the scripts to demonstrate the gospel was going to go to the Gentiles using a real life Roman example uh, to me paved the way for him to be able to minister to people of Rome. That's just completely my opinion there. Now, as it relates to first Peter, I want to hit this very quickly because I've got to move fast. Um, I do think that he was writing from Rome and he talks about the church at Babylon. I don't think Babylon was code for Jerusalem. My goodness. Um, I don't think it was code for Jerusalem in any of the works. So we have multiple documents preceding the New Testament calling Babylon at that time a name for Rome because of the exile view, particularly the Roman Empire itself. Clement of Alexandria in his sixth book of Hypostopsis cites the story of the bishop uh, Papias uh, and states in Peter's mentioning of Mark and his involvement of it, but mentioning it in so of relation, not just to the gospel of Mark, but how Mark is mentioned by Peter in first Peter said that he composed in Rome. It was composed in Rome itself and said that it was indicated by calling the city, a figurative name of Babylon. She who is in Babylon chose together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son, Mark which connects us to the writing of the gospel of Mark. Mark was with Peter in Rome. Clement of Alexandria indicates as well. And there's others. <laughs> there, there are others. For the sake of time, I want to get into Matthew 16. Let's talk about the construct of the phrasing and the terminology in Matthew 16. You are Peter. And on this rock... I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Who is the rock? Now the Roman Catholic church has greatly defended Peter and that right there, Christ was making him his first Pope. Lots of issues. Um, <laughs> uh, Peter was married. Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Uh, their position of the papacy is out of touch with biblical reality. In my opinion, um, 
Paul even says, do we not have a right to marry as do the other apostles? He told the Corinthians and he explicitly mentions Kephas or Cephas. And I, I, I want us to stop this nonsense. Although there is indication uh, that Kephas and Peter were not the same guy. I mm, beg to differ. <clears throat> Too many reasons to exclude that. But let's just let's just say 1 Corinthians Kephas isn't Peter, although he is certainly used that way in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Galatians, uh, using Peter's Aramaic name in relation. And I demonstrated this in my debate with Richard Carrier that Kephas was used particularly when Peter was in a group. Paul referred to Peter as Kephas when he talked about the group together and he being the leader of that group. When Peter was by himself, not with the church or not with others or not with any kind of uh, apostolic group in addition to himself, what ended up happening is he called him Peter. So individual, the man, he called him Peter. In the groups, when he's around people, he called him Kephas or Cephas, his Aramaic name. It's interesting that Paul used that tactic of distinguishing uh, Peter from individuality to group sessions. So I don't think they're different at all, but let's just say, let's just say it is. Don't miss the first statement Paul made. Are we not allowed to take wives? Paul's saying, I, I could take a wife. I don't, but I can. As do the other apostles. So again, Peter was married. He had a mother-in-law. So it applies. If he's not Kephas, it still applies to the group that Paul said the apostles also had married wives. One of those being Peter because we got a mother-in-law being healed by Jesus. I don't follow Roman Catholicism papacy, but I do follow Roman Catholic succession. The definition of that succession is different, but I do think there is succession lines to St. Peter today. I think there's corrupted lines and preserved lines in addition to that. That is another time, another episode. But hear me clearly. I do believe Rome's line of succession is invalid by its doctrine, not by its hand on heads. And that the line should be respected even when differed from. But I think they're right and wrong on Mark's uh, on, on, on Matthew's perspective of chapter 16. I do believe grammatically you are Peter and on this rock, the rock is Peter. Let me go into my reasoning. By the way, uh, Protestant theologians have no problem with this grammatical construct. This isn't a Protestant versus Catholic interpretation. What it is, is an anti-Catholic interpretation that forces readings into the text that are not there. Carson even maintains that Matthew, if he wanted to say anything more about this, about Peter and the stone and Jesus, that he would have used a different word if it was Jesus talking about himself. If he wanted to use a stone that was of any size. 
And that the pun that Jesus is using, Petros, Petra, using the pun of the feminine form and the masculine form of Petra, if Petros, if he wanted to do that, he would have used different words to, 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 to remove any kind of pun here. And, and I agree with him, actually. I think he would have used different terminology. Because Jesus is referred to as a rock. 1 Corinthians 10, for example. He's described as a rock. 1 Corinthians 3, he's described as a foundation. Which I'm going to come back to in a minute. Jesus' teaching is the foundation of the apostles. We don't differ on that at all. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says... He is the he is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. He is the essential piece to the whole thing. It all falls or stands on Jesus, not Peter. No one disputes that. But in Matthew 16, 18, it is Peter who functions as a foundational stone rock as all the apostles do. I mean, Ephesians 2, 20 and 21 says, it says that we are being built on the foundation and the, the stone usage, if you would, of the apostles and prophets. They are stones on the foundation. Yes, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Yes, he is the foundation by which all stands or falls. But on his foundation, he was going to build on himself the apostles and, a pro and the prophets. And we are now built on them who, are, who were built on Christ. You don't have to do this. You don't have to excuse away the passage. In order to defend Jesus as the chief cornerstone. No one on any side is differing from that. You're, you're arguing to a straw man when you do that. We have to be careful here. Except in John 142, where the name Cephas or Cephas is used. And really in John 142, it was used to clarify Petros there. Again, eliminating them being two different people. It is only used in the, New in the New Testament as a nickname for Simon Peter. So we need to know what Jesus is doing here. And it's very, very likely that Jesus was saying this in Aramaic. And Matthew's gospel reported originally in Aramaic. And the translators of the Greek Matthew, again, go back and listen to my episodes of Matthew, had to use the play on words in Aramaic into Greek and did the Petra Petros thing here. So here's the phrase in Greek. Kai epi taute te petra. Now the, the, the conjunction here is, is kai and not, not but. It's hardly used that way. De is typically the conjunction for, for but this happens. So it's not but I will build my church on this foundation. It's, it's and here. It's a conjunction connecting the previous and the coming 
clauses, statements. You are Peter, and on this rock, not you are Peter, but on this rock, I will build my church, meaning Jesus or his proclamation. It's and, clearly. Now, when used with the dative epi, it can be understood as a casual, a casual sense or a casual sense. And to me, what he does here is rightly translated in most of our English translations. It's a spatial understanding when it works. And the word is understood as being on something, on top of something, or being upon this factor. And that factor in the text is the Petra, the rock, the object. It's on the rock. Now, there's also an interesting dynamic in the Greek construct here, too. The Taute, which is this. This rock, this Petra. But it's interesting that there's an article... <laughs> right there in front of Petra, you have Tate Te Petra. The use of the article Te with the demonstrative pronoun Tate, which is the predicative position, indicates attributive function. So the phrase is absolutely correct when it is translated most often in English. And upon this rock. Now, Petra, again, is in the feminine. We get that. But these are play on words with Petras. You are Petras. And in the Aramaic, which it was probably stated in originally, you have the same thing here. It's, it's play on words like you are the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. You are Peter, and on this Peter, I will build my church kind of idea. It's a play on words. And that's what Carson was getting at. Like, Jesus would have used a different Greek word uh, if he was referring to himself here in relation. But that the pun would never have existed the way we see Petra and Petras had this been constructed to mean Jesus being the rock here, or the proclamation of Peter. To insert that it is on the proclamation of Peter is grammatically not there. I, I just demonstrated the construct doesn't even permit it. It is inserted without representation in the syntax. It is on the rock, not the proclamation. It's the play on word in the feminine, yes, because rock is the hewned out stone that the church would be built. And we see this actually come to life in Acts 2. Why is this hard to understand? We don't, we don't have to be Catholic, Roman Catholic, to get it. It is Peter who is leading the meeting in Acts 1. It is Peter who is forming with the other apostles the foundation of the church when the Spirit came in Acts 2. It is Peter who's the essential eyewitness testimony that proclaims these gospels through Mark, that Matthew corroborates with, that Luke corroborates with. 
It is Peter who gave testimony in 2 Peter to his eyewitness testimony of the Mount of Transfiguration. It is Peter who is writing authoritatively to the Church of Rome. Why wouldn't it be? It is Peter who is called out amongst the other apostles in 1 Corinthians 15, where, where Paul states that he appeared to the 12, and then he appeared to James, the leader of Jerusalem, and to Cephas, Cephas. It is the two disciples on the road to Emmaus that when they realized who they were with said, he's, he's appeared to Simon. Well, why him? God gave him divine understanding to know who Jesus was. God was going to use him to lead the apostolic group. And it was he who did so in chapter one of Acts and chapter two. It is he who is going to be the foundational piece on the true foundation of Christ that began this process and then the other apostles with him. He was a first amongst equals. He wasn't better than everybody else, but he was one of the leaders. Even Jesus saw him as such. If he didn't, he would have put him not in the inner three. And one of those is dead. The other is John, who became another essential eyewitness. These things are important for us to know about Peter. It was. Peter is the rock in Matthew 16. It is grammatically there. It doesn't mean he was the first pope. It means he was going to be one of the foundational pieces, along with the other apostles, yes. We see that in Ephesians 2. That Christ was going to build his church. And that church and that apostolic group and its foundings and its startings and its beginnings and its origins still exist in succession lines. Now, there's some evil. The church has become corrupted. Um, but Peter started many other works. I mean, he sent Mark to Alexandria. Herein lies the Coptic church. The Antiochian churches. Continue to do good. From Peter's succession line, also sending people uh, across the world like Augustine, not Augustine of Hippo, Augustine of Canterbury, who in the late 500s went to uh, Canterbury and was the beginning of the sea of uh, churches there authorized by Rome, but also ordained through John's succession line in 601, began what is now the Anglican foundings in pull from apostolic succession. There are so many other churches outside of Rome that are connected to the work of Peter. Again, you don't have to be Roman Catholic to believe these things. And if you are my friends listening to this and you're a Roman Catholic, and I'm sure there's some pushback here, and I understand that. We've had conversations on the side probably. And if not, I'm sure we will. The point of this is not to bash Roman Catholicism. I think there's a lot of good in Roman Catholicism. I think there's some corruption that needs to be repented of and changed. And I think Luther was mostly right in some of his um, criticisms and debates against Rome. So with that being said, I do hold to the position that they are a true succession church of Peter, but I do think they have fallen from the heart of truth from Peter. And therefore, I could not be Roman Catholic. 
Uh, that doesn't mean the rest of you are in the wrong and you're horrible people and you don't love God and you're not Christians. I enjoy uh, your friendships. I enjoy even listening to some of your great theologians like Bishop Barron and learn a lot from him. I'm just saying for me, I could not be Roman Catholic in relation to the information that we do have of the early church of Rome and how it looks today. I think it is deviated not by hands on head, but by the heart of the apostolic tradition, by other traditions taking over. But with that said, this is Peter. This is the life of Peter, both biblically, historically, his goings, his findings, his origins, his death, uh, his relics. This is a big and a longer uh, subject that we had to cover today that's almost at an hour. And I'm sorry for the time, but this is too big of a subject. And I, and I could have gone so much more in depth. And I'm sorry, but these programs are meant to be under an hour. And so I did the best I could. And I would love your feedback on this, of course. So please feel free to leave a comment, both in agreement or disagreement, and tell me what you think. I'll also have a poll on the end of this on Spotify, whether you not believe Peter actually went to Rome. And so be sure to see that poll and keep eyes open and ears opened as well for new episodes as they come. Thanks again for tuning into this episode. Grace and peace to you. Again, thanks for your support. Uh, you can find more. We are now integrated completely on Explore Christianity's website. Uh, also, if you want to give uh, to our ministry, feel free to go on there on explorechristianity.net. You'll find the facts program, but you'll also find an option to give to our ministry and help continue what we're doing here. Grace and peace to you.